listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome aboard Sea Control. Today we are discussing Indonesian maritime security challenges. My guests include Natalie Zombie. Welcome and thank you for agreeing to come on. Thank you. Next to Natalie, we have Jilang Kambara. Uh, Jilong, you're going to have to correct me if I did that pronunciation wrong. He's a researcher <laughs> for the Center for Strategic and International Studies based in Jakarta, Indonesia. Indonesia. Thank you for agreeing to join us. You're welcome. Hello. And finally, fresh off his deployment as a U.S. Navy reservist, Blake Herzinger, pl- prolific writer who specializes in theater security cooperation. As always, our opinions are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we may be otherwise associated. So first, thank you for everyone for agreeing to come on today. We're communicating across international datelines, so I'm really pleased to be granted this glimpse into the future. But I think before we begin diving into the maritime security challenges for Indonesia, it's important to give you each the opportunity to introduce yourselves to the viewers. So Natalie, I'd like to start with you, if you could tell us a little bit about your background and what's led you to study maritime security issues. Sure. Well, it's a pleasure to be back on SimSec. Uh, for some of you, I used to be the host of Sea Control Asia Pacific. What? So it's nice to be, yeah, it's nice to be back on my old podcast series. And my background, I used to work at the Department of Defense, where I started to learn a lot more about not only the Australian Defense Force, but the Indonesian uh, Armed Forces, known as Tentara Nacional Indonesia. And that was when I really first started to think about how important understanding the military to our north is, particularly from Australia's perspective, and uh, what an important role the Indonesian military has played within its own borders. Just on a side note, my mom is Indonesian, so there's a family uh, tie to it. So learning more about the Indonesian military has been fun to understand more about family history, but it's certainly pertinent to being an Australian working in the strategic sector. It's absolutely important that we understand a lot about Indonesia. So yeah, I've become a a writer and analyst about it, and I'm currently doing my PhD on Indonesian military history and its experiences in East Timor. Well, I legitimately did not know that you were a former Sea Control podcast host, and now I feel like I'm being <laughs> evaluated. Okay, no, that's great. Natalie, you mentioned you're Australian. Are you joining us from Australia now? I certainly am. I am on the west coast of Australia in a town called Perth which is three and a half hours to Bali. So actually really close, closer to Indonesia than it is to some parts of our East Coast. Okay. And can I ask, because this has fallen off the radar a little bit uh, with everything related to COVID-19, but how is it going with the wildfires in Australia? A little bit of diversion, but I think it is important to ask. Well, it's hard to see because all the headlines are inundated by uh, COVID-19. But to be on the positive note, more or less they're under control. There were months there where it was all the only thing that was uh, on our headlines. And so a lot of our colleagues over east have had to deal with choking smoke. You know, so we had some of the worst air quality in the world for a while, and the constant threat of of having fires very come quickly through the communities. Our defense force has been engaged in that as well, so we've got another battle on our hands, but we're nowhere near in the same situation as a lot of countries around the world. So, yeah, so far so good. Well, thank you again for joining us. Uh, Zhilong, over to you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you've been studying at CSIS? Sure, definitely, Jared. So I started in CSIS since 2015, and my background has been on maritime policies of Indonesia. How I started with maritime policies, actually, I began my career um, studying, researching about South China Sea issues between um, the various ASEAN member states and China. And from that stint, we ended up going further into different avenues on maritime security, uh, we had research collaborations with several countries around Asia Pacific, now Indo Pacific, and the latest research that we conducted was on uh, maritime safety. Actually, so it diverged a little bit from the security traditional dynamics, but we're looking into the safety aspects, meaning all the sailors, all the people that are within the ships, the equipments, how regulations are shaped, and that has been a new. Uh, it provides me with a new perspective on looking on maritime policies in general, I suppose. And we're looking forward to expanding things in the near future, hopefully after all the COVID-19 subsides, definitely. Thank you. And uh, what is the situation for you personally there? I I think you're joining us from Jakarta, is that correct? 
Correct. Yeah. And uh, as of this weekend, actually, I was just visiting my parents, so I'm not in my usual setup. <laughs> uh, since it's my mom's birthday, uh, so she needed a bit of a cheer up with all the situation. So we're here for the weekend. We'll be back into our place just uh, tomorrow. But so far, things are still pretty calm. But definitely, the governments are pretty much under fire for some lackluster policies implemented here. Yeah, I can certainly relate. Blake, over to you for uh, your intro. Hey, good morning, everyone. Um, so I joined the Navy in 2008, and honestly, it was a series of happy accidents and through no skill or intention of my own that I ended up uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So I'm really just kind of the lucky one. That, that's, I attribute all my success to, to blind luck in general. So I came to Singapore in 2013 working for the U.S. Navy's Maritime Liaison Unit. And so I worked specializing in basically relationships between the U.S. Navy and the commercial maritime enterprises. I kind of everywhere from south of Japan all the way out to India kind of as a solo solo gig, which was interesting and kept me pretty busy. And then I was fortunate enough to step from that into a private sector working as a consultant in security cooperation um, across the region. So had a lot of interaction with the uh, the Maritime Security Initiative, now the Indo-Pacific Maritime Security Initiative, so dealing directly with you know, providing training and equipment and interoperating with, with navies, again, in that same region, pretty much anywhere south of China all the way to India, the entire, the entire region. I've been in the reserve since 2017. Uh, as you mentioned, just came back from deployment to the Middle East, which made complete sense. You know, specialize in uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Spend ten months in the Middle East. Uh, so, um, happy to be home, ready to uh, get stuck into uh, the stuff that I'm familiar with again. Okay, can I ask? Were you on the uh, expeditionary uh, Ford staging base? Is that right? I was. I was indeed the uh, the mighty ship USS Lewis B. Puller, ESB three. Can I ask how it was? Those ships look really impressive. I've always wanted to get on one. So it was uh, it was a blast, honestly. I joke saying, you know, it's, you know, it was a bad experience. <laughs> it was. I, I somehow managed to uh, have over a decade in the Navy and never have been to the Middle East and never been to the Arabian Gulf. So now I've gotten to do all those things, you know, the Gulf of Aden, the, the Arabian Sea, all that stuff that you always want to see. But uh, the ship itself is wonderful. Um, it's a rotational crew. So there's a, a blue and a gold that are each there for five months. So I did one deployment with each crew myself and a detachment of four sailors. So we got to see a lot. We uh, operated a Scan Eagle off the ship, the Navy's mm-hmm. third large flight deck. Enormous ship, 82,000 tons. It's interesting and encouraging to see the Navy pushing into a cheaper hull that can actually do quite a lot. Um, and really looking forward to uh, ESB-5 coming out to the Indo-Pacific. So we will have that to look forward to. I think ESB-5 sits right across from where my normal office is now and is absolutely massive i wanted to go on ever since it started showing up but uh very jealous of what you've done there but i'm going to get into the uh podcast now and uh ask Jilong if you would kick off please with a little bit of a geography lesson for us on indonesia because i'm not sure everyone without looking directly at a map appreciates the complexity of the maritime situation for indonesia Certainly, Jared, and I can still remember back in my college days trying to trick my friends to sign, all right, so where is Indonesia? And they all go pointing out their fingers all across the Indo-Pacific. And I'm happy to share that Indonesia is the largest archipelagic state in the world. Um, we have, at the moment, if I'm not mistaken, about 10 or 11 maritime boundaries from, from east to west. And one of the main policies for the current administration was to straighten out all these maritime boundaries because we've had many, many incidents relating towards security and also towards uh, negligence all across these boundaries. So um, a lot of people would have understand that Indonesia's main hotspots to be what Malacca Strait, to an extent Sulawesi Sulu Sea and Sulawesi Sea. But once we look into the whole archipelagic map we assign we see that there's actually problems all across the maritime territories i mean just recently in december january we've all heard about the incursions made by chinese fishing vessels and to an extent of course the chinese coast guard and in the past of course we've also had issues with 
migration, illegal migration that came from mainland Southeast Asia heading towards Australia. I suppose um, Natalie would know this as well. Um, that that stemmed from the uh, from from the east western part uh, towards the maritime border that we have with with Australia, of course, and not to mention the various um, illegal fishing that happened pretty much um, from from the Natuna area towards um, the southern Arafura Sea and also our borders between the Philippines and also Indonesia. And I'll talk about this later on. This is a lot to cover, but just to give you a big sense of the immense geography and geopolitics issue that surrounds this beautiful archipelagic state, it's really hard to comprehend, but I, I'm very happy for people who try to, you know, get a perspective on these issues. Thanks. Jilong, uh, I'm operating under the assumption that most Indonesian maritime security concerns are related to China, but it sounds like China may just be one part of this. Is that the case? That is definitely correct. We had a research a couple of years ago dealing on... Uh, transboundary uh sorry transnational crime and what we see here is that there's a number of parties number of criminal issues that just came not only from china from what people would assume but but from most of southeast asia countries for example in regards with drug trafficking issues um we've had to deal with uh counterparts from thailand from um Cambodia and also Vietnam to an extent. We are, we have issues with, uh, we, I mentioned about illegal fisheries, not to mention wildlife trafficking that we have, uh, for example, in Malaysia and Indonesia, Mal uh, Indonesia and Philippines as well. So it, China is, is, a big, is a big elephant and lots of people would love to address the elephant, but all these smaller ones sometimes are just not, um, are not visible enough or it's just being blocked off by the bigger ones. Um, but once we start to uh, nip the bud of all these criminal, uh, transnational crim uh, crime issues, we start to see where all this harbored, where it came from, and where exactly it's going through. And since we are pretty much the cross point between Pacific and the Indian Ocean, I mean, it's just logic that a lot of people would like to traverse upon our um, geographical areas. Yeah, if I can just add a little bit to that as well, you Absolutely. know, from an Australian perspective, when we look at Indonesia, as Kilan pointed out, strategically located between Indian Ocean and Pacific Oceans, you know, for us, so thinking about Indonesia's maritime security challenges, which are by extension our security challenges as well, are, you know, you've got to look at the Indian Ocean, what's going on there in terms of resource management, as Gilong pointed out, you know, all the strategic uh, lines of communication, you know, ensuring that those remain safe and open um, but certainly, as Gilang pointed out, like those transnational security issues, you know, you can think about China and you can think about the hard security vulnerabilities, but those range of transnational human security issues that are maritime related are of great concern. Australia and Indonesia are both co-chairs of a process called the Bali process, which relates to people smuggling, trafficking and transnational crime and certainly a large element of that is thinking about how these sorts of uh, activities are conducted in the maritime space. So for Australia, when we think about Indonesian maritime issues, we don't just think military, we also think in terms of other civilian agencies, in terms of working together with our uh, maritime security, maritime law, mm. and, and other issues like that. So yeah, for us, it's, it's just beyond maritime incursions by naval assets, but other more broad ranging issues. And that's, I think, the sheer scope of challenges in the space that Indonesia is responsible for, you know, for our, our American listeners, I think it's enlightening to think of, often America thinks of ourselves as a very broad, you know, expansive state with a lot of maritime responsibilities. But as Gilang mentioned, with an archipelagic state, if you align the western tip of Sumatra with California, you know, Papua is going to fall east of Maine, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to fall victim to the U.S. Navy uh, tendency to just start spouting off numbers, you know, but there's, what, like 6,000 inhabited islands in Indonesia, 17, over 17,000 total islands. It's an enormous exclusive economic zone uh, to attempt to patrol or maintain any kind of situational 
awareness of. So the enormity of that challenge be difficult for really any, any state. So, you know, I have nothing but respect for the Indonesian agencies uh, and services that are tasked with trying to get their arms around all those different issues from, you know, hard security military challenges down to people smuggling, drug smuggling, just gray and black economies running through, you know, ports across the archipelago it's incredible really but uh, just the scope is daunting yes to add with the ex- um, just aside from the external threats uh, sorry external parties we also don't want to discount the internal parties that are also involved here of course there are several parties within the country that are also responsible for all these security issues and um, it's just too big to list out at the moment so just saying that without discounting it <laughs> Natalie I was going to ask about uh, the work between the Australian government and the Indonesian government because I imagine that happens across a very broad spectrum whether you're talking about you know both governments trying to work against illicit criminal activity both government governments trying to work to manage resources uh, how is that cooperation Look, our government has a very rich cooperation with the Indonesian government. If I'm not mistaken, I think our embassy is almost the largest presence there, which is reflective not only of the number of personnel, but the representation of all number of government agencies from the Attorney General's department to environment to obviously defence. But we've got cooperation spanning across all services with the Indonesian military, um, the national police, as I mentioned earlier, uh, law enforcement attorney generals, um, and mm-hmm. so forth. So it covers a broad number of areas. And uh, obviously, we do a large number of maritime-related activities, um, whether that's in terms of exercises or training, but certainly in terms of information exchange as well. Those kinds of things remain critical because, you know, as Gilang mentioned earlier, there's a lot of activity in Australian waters and in Indonesian waters, activity crossing over. We've had maritime issues in the past with boundaries that needed delimiting, especially once Timor-Leste became independent. So there's been a long history of of Australia-Indonesian maritime thinking, I would say, and uh, that's been strengthened even more as the you know comprehensive strategic partnership has grown between the two countries. An important part of that has been the maritime domain. So that area of cooperation will only set, be set to increase. Thank you, Julang. Uh, I'm going to come back to you for our next question. It- The main point of contention between the Chinese and Indonesians seems to be the waters in and around the Natuna Islands, the North Natuna Sea, or which the Chinese refer to as the South China Sea. What are the conflicting flames there? In the past, seriously, um, Indonesia and China has managed to deal with their disputes pretty well. And the nature of the disputes have definitely uh, have a number of factors being, number one, of course, the sovereignty that China wants to exert within the South China Sea. The second one would be the claim resources uh, within the area, both, um, of course, fishing, um, natural resources um, to be claimed as well. Uh, despite the fact, despite the fact that fishing within the South China Sea, the resource, the fishing resources has dropped considerably in the past several decades. And then um, the, the matter of the fact right now is that with some moratoriums being Im- implemented by the Chinese authorities uh, across several months, Chinese fishing vessels have started to encroach even more south of the of the sea of the South China Sea, touching upon the exclusive economic zone of, for example, southern Vietnam, southern tip of, of Malaysia and Borneo, and also to an extent uh, northern part of the Natuna Natuna Seas. And the recent, the recent flare-up has been, of course, uh, instigated by the Chinese fishing vessels under the protection, of course, of the Chinese Coast Guard and, to an extent, protection of the Chinese militia. That's for some reason, uh, is not new for some of us here who have, who have seen the flare-ups with the South China Sea. But within the, policy, within the government circle, perhaps they, it's, it, it just caught them a bit off guard by the sheer number of protection that Chinese vessels have at the moment. So... It is, to an extent, it's still fishing, fishing a dispute that we have, uh, fishing zones, unlike, for example, with Malaysia and Vietnam, where we've seen uh, oil rigs coming in into their exclusive economic zones. Indonesia has not seen similar posture from China, but I suppose it's just a matter of time until a change of policies may happen. Can I ask, how is 
dispute resolution been handled between the Indonesians and Chinese at this point? Is it largely bilateral or is it something that the Indonesians pursue as part of a larger alliance or with partners? The perceiving a notion at the moment with dispute resolution has been so far bilateral to my knowledge and it has been managed under the table for years. Jakarta and Beijing does not want to have disputes being uh, blow up into public proportion in the sense that, number one, Jakarta fears repercussions and effect that would happen towards the Chinese community. And number two, of course, the Chinese, China, Beijing does not want any repercussions happening to their own economic interests within the country. So most disputes we know have been settled uh, under the table. For example, the 2016 tuna incursion as well. Despite the rhetorics from the government, you saw Jokowi on a warship within the area, but to an extent, the dispute itself was handled uh, under the table in a very quiet manner. And by the end of 2016, even though with the passing of the PCA ruling and all, it's just been thrown under the rug to an extent. And then and then people is just starting to, all right, let's forgive and forget. But with this, the difference is, is that a lot of media, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, observers picked up with the issue and start blowing it up uh, bigger in in a bigger way than 2016. And uh, I saw, I tried to make some uh, some numbers here, and I and I and in in a rough counting, I saw more publications from the Chinese media as well on the issue between Indonesia and China in December and January, in contrast with the 2016 incursion. So it, it was definitely a bigger proportion this time, but it just then stymied off by, by end of January, February, early February as well. Yeah, I have to say, Jared, um, I agree with Gilang. I think this issue definitely attracted a lot more media attention, both in and outside of Indonesia. You know, as someone sitting outside of Indonesia, I uh, watch a program called Matanajwa, which is hosted by a female journalist's well-watched show amongst the middle class in Indonesia that had a lot of senior ministers and experts on the show. And it wasn't just, I think, one program, but she brought a lot of attention to this and her being quite a, a sort of attractive figure in the media uh, would have shone a pretty strong light on this. So I think that would have continued the public conversation about what is Jokowi going to do about the situation. So I was actually quite interested that that became a topic. Obviously now, you know, the country is is coming to grips with other challenges, but this was certainly something that was, I think, in the forefront of a lot of Indonesians' minds by by virtue of programs like hers. Has the government expressed a long-term plan for dealing with these incursions? Oh, sorry, was this directed to me or? Are you <laughs> going, wanna... I was kind of thrown in the go group, on, but go ahead, Julong, and then we'll come back to Natalie after you're done. All right, sorry, Natalie. <laughs> in regards with long-term policies, there's no big strategy when it comes to dealing with this incursions and all. Jacoby wants to return normalcy as quickly as possible, return back to status quo, no harms done, and etc. Underneath it all, uh, we know some elements within the government wanted to have a more stronger, for example, uh, reaction. And I know one individual, for example, uh, Baba Ahmad Santosa, uh, that is a task force that was uh, combined elements of the military, uh, the police, uh, coast guards, and other maritime security agencies, including the Ministry of Fisheries, Seas and Fisheries, to deal with any illegal and un- unregulated and unreported fishing. And him has thrown a lot of focus to this issue. And it's not just directed to China. I mean, it is the big elephant there. But it is directed to mitigate the effects, the negative effects, and of course, the proliferation of IUU fishing across the maritime territories. Some people have shown their doubts with the new minister of uh, seasoned fisheries on how he tries to handle the uh, IUU fishing and all the other challenges, security challenges that come part of this. But elements within the ministry have have continued to implement the policies that was conducted within the previous administration. Mas Ahmad Santosa, as I mentioned, is one of the individuals that tried to pursue the policy from the previous administration. And I see some of the individuals have started to support his initiatives as well, including some from CSIS as well. Look, I was just going to add to that. I mean, it's true that just because you change a minister doesn't mean the entire bureaucracy can change. But I think sometimes you can change the direction 
of where that particular ministry is headed. So I'm keen to see where that goes. Um, Gilang is right, task force at Lima Satu Satu? Satu Satu Lima, one one. Right, Jared, you're going to have to edit that part yeah, out. So that's... task force 115 um, did an excellent job, but apparently its future is now under under revision. So we're going to see whether or not mm. we're going to retain that interagency task force. Gilad is also right. It doesn't seem to be a coherent long-term strategy, but parts of the government have announced in terms of dealing with these kinds of incursions, in the case of Notuna anyway, is to build up a stronger, not just a military presence, but also an economic presence. So uh, Luhut Panjaitan, mm. who's the coordinating minister for maritime affairs and investment, um, said that he wanted Indonesia to take a leading role in boosting sustainable maritime economy and building up around the Natuna Islands, trying to draw Japanese investment there, trying to build up some of the infrastructure. And that might look like things like developing cold storage uh, around the Natula Islands and also providing a facility for fuel resupply. So there are those kinds of plans. But again, that doesn't seem to be like any kind of unveiled Natuna anti-incursion strategy. But um, I think as Gilang pointed out, it's it's a bit of a tightrope right now. The government needs to look tough on dealing with things like illegal fishing, but it can't do it in a way that's going to be singling out and demonizing China in particular. You know, mm-hmm. There was a mixed government response, as Gilang pointed out, I think, because the reality is Indonesia can't afford to be too hard on what is seen as one of its most important investment partners. And now that Indonesia is seeking you know, a significant amount of assistance from China in terms of equipment and testing kits for COVID-19, there's even more cause for restraint. So I think there's a bit of a balancing act here, and we will see what happens in terms of Indonesia on the one hand defending its natural resources, and at the same time having President Jokowi trying to then realise a lot of his policies of infrastructure and human resource development by the end of his second term. May, may I add just one more thing I forgot to mention? Um, Natalie mentioned about the TV show Matanajwa, and uh, I distinctly remember on the issue with Natuna. And there was one a talk about inviting or not inviting, mobilizing the fishing fleets across Indonesia, particularly from Java, towards the North Natuna Sea. First, I thought that would be a, just an ad hoc policy at, at, at best. It would be just to scare off the Chinese or any other external threats that we're, we're dealing. But in recent times, actually, there, there have been talks about putting this policy in, in, in stone and uh, by creating a maritime militia similar to Chinese, similar to the Vietnamese. But what we lack at, at the moment is a regulation to control this maritime militia. But the gist of it was to, to mobilize uh, elements within the civilian force or, or, the, or the civilians to not only just fish around the sea in North Natuna, but also to conduct some sort of like uh, surveillance of the area. If they see, if they see any uh, suspicious activities that came not from the Indonesian boats or, or from other external parties, then they are to alert the security, maritime security agencies at the soonest. But I have not heard any more. I think the last time I heard was early March. But this supposed regulations have been put on hold or any talks have been put on hold. But this is just something that's been circulating around the, the capital for, for a while. I mean, the short of the long is if you see something fishy, say something. Okay. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that, yeah. that stays in. I will not edit that out. Um, <laughs> Blake, I actually wanted to ask you because this is the first time that I've heard of another country sort of adopting the Chinese practice of, um, for lack of a better term, deputizing their fishermen. And part of the difficulty, I think, uh, is we look as outsiders as from this region of dealing with the Chinese is the many layers of force that the Chinese can employ here, whether you want to call that hybrid or gray zone or whatever it is. But can you explain the different Chinese forces that are in play here for you know, countries that may enjoy a adversarial re- relationship in that area? Sure. So um, there's been great work done on this uh, from a number of people. Andrew Erickson's kind of, you know, the leading authority really on this third arm of, of the Chinese maritime machine, this kind of third Navy that they have. Um, you know, they have the traditional Greyhold Navy, the Whitehold Coast Guard, which is a synthesis of a bunch of previous maritime agencies, you know, put into one. Lyle Goldstein did a lot of work on talking about how that was put together. 
and then their maritime militia, which is used to kind of push the PRC flag into places where you couldn't even send the Coast Guard, but you could send, you know, a large number of fishing vessels, and 80 or 100, because then it pulls the Chinese Coast Guard forward to protect them as they kind of challenge maritime boundaries or, or claims. And there's a lot of interesting reporting out there on the Chinese maritime militia. There's been a lot of testimony before the, before Congress on this. How much training are they getting? What are they receiving from the government? We know they've received subsidies for shipbuilding and fuel in the past. Been reports of you know PLA uniforms on board these type of ships. They've been involved in a number of aggressive confrontations with most countries in the region, to include the United States, but certainly not limited to. Referencing you know the 2016 tuna incident, there's actually been instances of uh, the Chinese Coast Guard intervening um, in maritime law enforcement of. Indo-Pacific states, you know, preventing states like Indonesia from completing law enforcement actions at sea by ramming, engaging in very unsafe activity. So the maritime militia is an interesting concept that the Chinese have used to great effect, but I, I'm simultaneously intrigued and concerned when I see, um, you know, new talk of starting up a new militia. Vietnam actually has, has previously employed this concept when the, uh, Chinese oil exploration platform came into uh, Vietnamese waters. They've mobilized their own fishermen to respond to Chinese fishermen. And there was, you know, there were ramming incidents. Vietnamese vessels were sunk. While it may be effective to kind of counter with an equivalent force, it does introduce, as was already mentioned, I think uh, Natalie said this, actually, I think both Elong and Natalie have referenced this, that control is a very difficult issue when you push it down to a very large civilian force that is largely untrained. You know, what what happens when we introduce two equivalent forces of nationalistic fishermen who are out there trying to do, you know, what they think is right for their own country, and you kind of, you add that catalyst to this mix of Coast Guard ships, naval vessels, and now you've got this spark kind of in this keg of gunpowder. It's an interesting concept, I think, but it's, it concerns me. Now, I wanted to come back to uh, the IUU fishing because you had the first article that caught my eye and was the impetus for putting this podcast together was your article from January titled Legacies, Lessons, and Lobsters about Indonesia's tough enforcement measures. And you mentioned a new minister for fisheries. So what were those measures and what were they directed against? Sure. I think we've got to set some of those policies in the context that they were in. So when Jokowi was elected in 2014, he said that he was going to promise to protect Indonesia's maritime domain, particularly fish resources. So in doing so, he appointed a self-made businesswoman named Susie Pujiastuti as the Maritime Affairs Minister. And she was charged with implementing many of these tough policies, which included uh, blowing up the boats. And so I'll explain that what that is in a moment. It was important to say that that policy existed before Susie, but under her, it became very high profile, not least of all because she promoted it on a lot of her social media accounts, and she herself is a bit of a rock star figure. But in short, the policy goes like this. If you're caught illegally fishing in Indonesian waters, your boat is seized. The matter then goes to the courts, and then once it's decided that that was indeed what you were doing, then the boat is destroyed. Now, when I say destroyed, it's not like a bunch of people go along and just pull it apart. It's packed with dynamite pushed out into the waters and then blown up in spectacular fashion. And what Susie did was to invite a lot of media representation to come and cover the incident. So these things became quite high profile and they become you know, emblematic, as what Gilang said, of nationalistic policy. Hey, look, we're actually doing something. And if you come and you fish in Indonesian waters, this is what's going to happen to your boat. Now, it, in some ways, it was a popular policy because it looked like the government was doing something. At the same time, others criticized it said, well, it's a perfectly fine boat. Could we have just given that to our own people? So there was a bit of a mixed response there. Nevertheless, during Susie's five years as maritime minister, uh, 556 illegal boats were destroyed. Only 26 of them were Indonesian. And while it seems like this policy was directed against China, there were only actually three boats destroyed that were Chinese. The vast majority, 321 out of the 556 were actually Vietnamese. And then other sizable representation includes boats from the Philippines, Malaysia, Thailand, PNG, Niger Nigeria, and Belize. So quite a mix there. But just in terms of numbers, it might show a propensity of one country to conduct 
illegal fishing in Indonesian waters, it might also say something about the legal process or the preparedness of authorities to be able to be seen destroying Chinese boats as well. So I wouldn't necessarily take those numbers as just the figures of who, who is doing the most illegal fishing. But in terms of Susie's policies, they were seen as being deterrent, although that I think the jury's still out. There's some academic research that shows there's a correlation there between Susie's term and a decrease in the amount of illegal fishing. But in terms of causality, it's another question because there are a number of other policies, uh, ban on transshipment in Indonesian waters and, of course, environmental protection policies, which banned bottom trawling and selling undersized shellfish as well. So there were lots of things that she did. You know, she as an individual was seen as cool and, and hard-hitting, so she brought a lot of attention to the portfolio. And her successor is a different character and has got different priorities, so we'll see where the policies head under him. Long, did you have anything you wanted to add on this? I'd probably want to say that all with all the rock star nationalistic policies that Susie has been put out, she actually hasn't touched upon the integral part of the fishing industry itself, which is the law enforcement part, to be exactly. I mean, all the policies that she mentioned, that's just her wanting to show to the public that, hey, guys, I'm blowing up the ships, the, sh- the fish are coming back. Uh, the stocks of fish are good and etc. But to an extent, what I listen to all the people is that the the enforcement system, the law enforcement system is still pretty much corrupt. You have um, investigators that have a lack of integrity here. You have prosecutors that does not ha- does not understand the issue on, at hand. And then you have courts that are specifically dealing with uh, fishery issues that are actually uh, is considered to be most corrupt, if not more corrupt. Than, than the than the general court, you know. So the system that are being put in place here is is rotten down to the core, and has not been changed. Or or maybe there are just very little changes made by the previous administration, and now with the new ones, um, we see some reversal of policies being conducted. Uh, but we haven't seen, or at least I haven't heard from the people responsible that he, the minister himself, are trying to touch upon the issues of law enforcement, which is for decades have been the evils that are currently residing within the, the, the bureaucracy uh, of, of this issue, yeah. So I won't presume to uh, have more granular knowledge on the uh, effectiveness or uh, quality of the law enforcement um, like like Elon does, but I will say and there's been some difficulty in Indonesian maritime law enforcement just in authorities. You know, talking about corruption in agencies, there's also been issues of who can actually conduct what type of investigation. There have been current efforts at kind of streamlining maritime law enforcement. 13 agencies with at least some tangential responsibility for maritime security. And, and that's just an unworkable system. You know, that's so many different stovepipes of information and, and it's impossible to get the type of synergy you need to conduct effective enforcement and investigation. So um, while I am confident that, you know, there is corruption in the system, it's also been the system itself holding back people who maybe want to do the work correctly. It's, it's, it's very difficult. You know, an interesting way to involve kind of a, a low-level aspect of surveillance has been really interesting uh, in Malaysia, actually. They've, they've pioneered a, a maritime security app um, called K3M, they've provided that to their fishermen. And that actually is used to send information to law enforcement to provide kind of more eyes at sea. So kind of reaching back into the discussion of uh, incorporating a civilian militia aspect of this, it's really, um, it's been shown in Malaysia to to work just using people as a source of information at sea. Because that's really, you know, how law enforcement works, right? You're out there, you know, you have feet on the street and at sea, it, you can't do that, especially in a sea area as large as, as Indonesia's. Um, you have to have those people, those sources providing information. So, you know, I'd, I'd be very encouraged if uh, Indonesian maritime law enforcement community went that direction as far as involving the maritime community. Natalie, you'd mentioned before, or you went through a laundry list of other countries who'd had their boats seized during Zussi's reign as uh, the fisheries minister. How are Indonesian relations with the with its other neighbors. And I guess, Gilang, I'll actually start with you. We, we've talked about Australia. We've talked extensively about China. But Vietnam has come up. The Philippines have come up. Malaysia has now come up. Mm. How are the relations with its other neighbors at sea? 
In respect with the, the maritime relationship, if I may say, first of all, within our Southeast Asian neighbors, it has been pretty much an ups and downs. But the Ministry of Foreign Affairs have managed to deploy or at least concentrate efforts to realign issues, uh, maritime issues, between uh, Indonesia and its uh, Southeast Asian neighbors. As I mentioned before, the previous administration has tried to, how should I say this, realign or if not make clear of the maritime boundaries that exist between Indonesia and its neighbors. In the past, for example, uh, there hasn't been clear delineation of maritime boundaries between Indonesia and its 10 neighbors, 10 maritime neighbors. And in the previous administration with Jokowi's Global Maritime Fulcrum, one of the key issues that was put out was to make clear of all these delineations. And so what I heard is that the, the MOFA has conducted negotiations with Malaysia, with Palau, with India, Philippines, Papua New Guinea, East Timor, Malaysia, uh, and Australia, and, and, and many other countries to make clear of the border demarcation uh, delineation between the two states. What I know is that there are still some uh, negotiations going on to an extent between Indonesia and Vietnam, as was as seen by the recent incidents that we had last year between Indonesia and Vietnam, where there are still, from the Vietnamese side, they would still claim, oh, this area to be part of Vietnam, whilst from Indonesia's side, no, that's Indonesians, your part is on that side. So there are still homeworks to do. But uh, I'm basing this from the... Uh, national Ocean Policies work plan that was conducted uh, that should be that was finished by 2019, and uh, we we uh, we analyzed that from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, they've pretty much conducted a number of all these uh, negotiations between Indonesia and 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 its maritime uh, neighbors, and so I'd say that relationship has been managed in a very cordial level. And there is no intention, uh, 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 there is no ill intention in trying to push, uh, uh, how should I say, just a one-sided interest. Because when when we deal with Southeast Asian, Indonesia has always tried to put forward the ASEAN interest in the foray. With China, if I may add something with China, uh, I think we just, uh, I think we talked about this earlier. It's still pretty much something that we try to deal with under the table. Economics is the main driving force of the relationship. And as Natalie mentioned before, it's not just with China. We also try to deal with Japan and try to invite them to con- to invest on a fishing uh, facilities, cold storage facilities, and etc. So economy is a driving force. And with the side effects of us trying to manage all these disputes and the issues that we have with our neighbors. So I, I hope that answers it. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to ask though specifically, what was the uh, Vietnamese response to the destruction of the fish, fishing vessels? They're not happy. <laughs> Vietnam has always been the first to raise a protest. And I don't blame them. I mean, I suppose we, we would also we would also share the same reaction, I suppose. But to an extent, there has been cordial level. But I suppose that explains the difficulty between Indonesia and Vietnam to try to find same ground, same footing. And despite us having the same issue with China, for example, I I think uh, we'll cover this later on, but it's, it's as if that we are two brothers set very apart, you know, very differently. So it's very, it's a very different foot. But I'll save that for later. Absolutely. So I, I did want to turn to uh, some more naval questions here and discuss specifically naval modernization. So large portions of the world recapitalizing their navies right now. Uh, if you look at Europe, a lot of that is driven by the events of 2014 in Crimea. I think the rise of China has also sparked a lot of recapitalization of fleets around the Pacific. So at the turn of the 20th century, you had a race to build battleships in the 21st century see more procurement of submarines, surface vessels with advanced air defense capabilities. How has the Indonesian Navy gone about recapitalizing its fleet? I'll ask you first, Gilang, then turn to uh, Blake and Natalie for that one. I do understand that with the Indonesian Navy, there has been a lot of concentration, first of all, in, in developing the submarine fleet. Submarine has been in the foray even before the previous administration, and with the acquisition of three new submarines from South Korea, we are thinking of expanding it further, developing more fleets, more capabilities, and to extend the arms of the, our subfleets to be able to cover a lot of maritime grounds, I'd say a lot of the seas surrounding Indonesia. 
Second to second of all, that's most important, if I'm not mistaken, is the increase of ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance uh, capability by the Indonesian Navy. Not only the Navy, but also from the other elements of the armed forces as well. This includes the expansion of radar systems across the islands, across the archipelago, improvement of uh, communication systems between uh, warships and ground-based systems, and also uh, communication between different units, and also uh, between the elements, the, the different elements of the armed forces. The recent addition within the uh, TNI, and I, I think I hope Natalie can also correct me if I'm wrong here, is the implementation of a new. I can't really say it in English, but I'd say in Indonesian, Komando Bagian Wilayah, meaning that uh, it, we are consolidating the elements of the armed forces into two, three, three different regions within Indonesia, and then all the three elements, the, arm, the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, would now try, or if not, would implement, would, would mobilize their, their operations in a single sort of command, command unit. We're really trying to let go of the old system where the Army works alone, the Air Force works alone, Navy works alone. But we're really trying to combine all the three elements of the armed forces to better communication, to better, how should I say, uh, so I'm not too well versed on this, on the terms, but interoperability, there we go. Interoperability between between all the these armed forces. So if I'm not mistaken, that's that's so far that that's the main issues there. There, are of course, other acquisition, other equipment acquisitions are also in in in, in force there. Natalie, did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, definitely. You know, Gilang pointed out the important elements of the Indonesian naval modernization story. You know, which is a continuation of a modernization program that started under the Uniono administration. Now, a large part of this picture I would like to highlight is about money. Last year, the government uh, earmarked what would be this year's largest allocation for defense, which is about 10 billion U.S. dollars or 131 trillion Indonesian rupiah, which is a significant increase of about 20 percent. But the problem is, of course, is it's predicated on Indonesia maintaining a particular percentage of economic growth. Now, as we know, all countries around the world are going to be experiencing economic strain as a result of coronavirus. And according to defense analyst Alman Helves, because the government is undergoing an overall budget cut, that will include the Ministry of Defense as well. And there will be an increased focus on military medicine. So the extent to which the Indonesian Navy will have the sufficient funds available to continue to do things like rebuild its or to build up its submarine capability to in be able to invest in ISR will be constrained by these budget cuts. And if you look at the budget overall, I think Gilang highlighted a really important part about the Indonesian military's lurch towards interoperability and a jointness, if we can call it that. But ultimately, I think the army remains a predominant element of the armed forces, as it does in many militaries around the world, but particularly so in the Indonesian context. There are historical reasons for that, but I think there are just practical reasons for that. And again, with the onslaught of COVID-19, when we see the use of the military in many countries around the world, not only to be able to enforce self-isolation and the movement of people, but in order to be able to do things like distribute equipment, but also man hospitals, I think we may see some sort of reinforcement and continuation of those kinds of uh, land forces and budget allocations as such. So we'll see how it goes. Um, but an alternative for Indonesia is to help pay for some of the recapitalization of its naval forces with commodities as well. So it uh, has in the past offered to pay for some of its modernization, for example, with its new generation fighter jet with uh, coffee and palm oil in, in addition to money. So these are just additional thoughts that go into thinking about Indonesia's journey towards military modernization. Thank you, Blake. From your perspective, how has the naval cooperation been between Indonesia and its neighbors? So it's it's been really interesting. So I think, you know, moving away from the Natuna example, um, because that's kind of more emblematic of Indonesia's push to work in a more joint manner, thinking about the trilateral cooperative agreement in the Sulu Sea area, particularly the Subutu Passage, I think that really naval cooperation and maritime security cooperation writ large really highlight the strength of ASEAN to work on issues without resolving some of the longstanding conflicts that may exist on border demarcation or maritime claims, but agreeing that, hey, it's pretty important for a region where millions upon millions rely on 
the sea as a source of sustaining life, uh, we probably need to make sure this is still here for the next generation. So, uh, you know, with the TCA, you have, while it's not a combined approach like we might see in the United States or like we might hope to see, you know, two ships sailing alongside one another from different countries, you have Indonesia, Malaysia, and Philippines cooperating together and coordinating, passing information to rein in sea robbery and, uh, and kidnapping that had been going on in the Sulu Sea area and negatively affecting maritime traffic. Indonesia runs the, uh, the Komodo exercise, which is an a awesome example of maritime security cooperation in the region. That is an Indonesia-led exercise, and they hold that for you know, basically whoever wants to come, and it's great. It's not a super high-level warfighting exercise, but cooperation at sea at any level is, is encouraging and positive. Like Ilong mentioned, there is a push to get that C4ISR question resolved because with a, an archipelago the size of Indonesia's, there's no way that you could patrol that with surface vessels or with submarines. I mean, it's just it's too vast. Uh, it would be impossible. You would break your force just trying to rein in internal security problems. But, you know, it's it's 2020. There is privatized satellites up there that you can buy imagery from. You can buy surveillance. That is a service that's available. There's a lot of maritime domain awareness technology out there that is uh, that's of high value, and governments can get it at a pretty affordable rate. And, uh, and I'm happy to see Indonesia kind of pushing that direction. You know, uh, Dr. Bernard Liu at, uh, at RSIS has, has called submarines kind of the bling in ASEAN, that all navies are, are looking for that bling factor. Indonesia previously had, you know, the largest submarine force in Southeast Asia. They have been uh, pushing back towards acquiring an effective submarine force. I don't think it's a bad thing. You know, Indonesia is a large country. They, they're justifiably proud of their armed services. I do wish that we would see more activity on budget items for things that are maybe more needed in the current environment. And, and Indonesia has gone that way. They've acquired some new Sigma-class frigates, um, the PKRs that are uh, an excellent ship. They've They've allocated funding for some offshore patrol vessels, some fast attack craft. Natalie mentioned the, uh, the influence of the Army. There's been some uh, funding set aside last year for some tank landing ships, you know, just in case you need to get a, uh, a main battle tank out to sea to police some fishermen. But there has been investment in uh, Indonesia's fleet, the surface fleet and the, and the subsurface fleet, but particularly, like Elang mentioned, with the ISR piece, which maritime domain awareness is kind of the one of the big buzzwords at in the maritime community these days. I mean, you have to have it. And uh, in a day of constrained budgets, and we're all about to hit the skids on budgets as COVID-19 kind of takes that bite out of the military spending of, of all of us, finding that low cost answer to these hard questions is a great way forward. Gilang or Natalie, anything else to add on the Indonesian Navy? I just have one thing quickly. Um, I just wanted to highlight the important role that defense industry is playing in terms of boosting cooperation in the naval domain. Um, Indonesia has an indigenous shipbuilding company called PT PAL, and it's been producing ships, you know, for patrol, uh, you know, for indigenously and also to sell. And countries like the Philippines and Timor Leste have either purchased or have been gifted patrol vessels. So I think that's in a really important way that Indonesia has been able to use industry as a form of diplomacy, but also building up capability in these countries, particularly for countries like Timor-Leste that are underfunded and still has a very nascent armed forces. So yeah, just want to think about to see where that goes in the future. Perhaps if I, if I may add also one more thing um, within this year that's still being kept within the Navy as in years past is that um, I think Jacoby still instructed that the Navy still retains element of the law enforcement role, despite calls of more roles being uh, delivered towards the civilian maritime uh, security agency. But I think this role will not subside in, in the near future. It's... Thank you. And sort of the last question here is 70% of our listeners are in the U.S. Is uh, how is the U.S.-Indonesian relationship at sea, whether it's U.S. Navy to Indonesian Navy, is the U.S. Coast Guard involved? Blake, I'll start with you. So, you know, I think I think it's a great relationship. Both the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Coast Guard have, have strong long-term relationships with both the Indonesian Navy uh, and the maritime law enforcement community. We do yearly exercises. As I mentioned, Indonesia leads their Komodo exercise, which we participate in. The U.S. runs the Southeast Asia Cooperation and Training Exercise, CCAT. Indonesia is an enthusiastic participant there, both from the law enforcement and the Navy side, which is awesome. We love to see that. Last year, you know, just kind of highlighting 
one example on the law enforcement side. In 2019, there were two deployments of United States Coast Guard national security cutters to the Indo-Pacific. The Stratton did a, a really neat bilateral exercise with the Indonesian Coast Guard, Bakamla. So they did some subject matter expert exchange. They did some tabletop exercise. And then they did uh, some actual boarding exercises, uh, searching searching ships and and people for contraband and things like that. So that was something that, you know, we, we really like to see both that gray hold cooperation and the white hold cooperation. It's I think this is one of the regions that really highlights that you can't just have one, right? You can't you can't expect your na- your gray hold navy to be out there apprehending fishermen, and uh, and also conducting national security missions. While the TNI AL may really want to hang on to that law enforcement role, like Gilang mentioned, and I'm sure they do because you know more missions means more funding. How long can the force really sustain any kind of competency in both? It's pretty difficult. And and as Bakamla has grown kind of and its its star has sort of risen throughout the bureaucracy, I would say, and uh, Gilang or Natalie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Bakamla is on a trajectory to really become that agency that that people are looking to to fulfill that Coast Guard role. And, and it's my understanding that they are now referred to as the Indonesian Coast Guard. Previously, they had that coordination role among those 13 agencies. But I think a lot of those authorities, and I hope, will be uh, folded kind of into one organization um, for ease of movement and, and operation. But yeah, overall, you know, very strong cooperation. We talked about the, the Natuna response. Um, there were F-16s that were part of that, that were um, part of U.S. security cooperation. Hope to see some more good security cooperation exchanges going forward. This year, again, COVID-19 has thrown some spanners into the works on, you know, when CCAT, how CCAT's going to happen, what what will happen with the, the normal calendar that we have for interacting. But we'll just have to see, you know, obviously uh, the safety and security of, of both forces and, and the populations are what comes first. But uh, hoping to see... Uh, both come out stronger on the other side and, and continue that upward trajectory of cooperation. Thanks. Uh, before I go over to Yilong or Natalie for any thoughts, uh, do you know where the Indonesians planning on participating in RIMPAC? Have they played there in the past? Uh, off the top of my head, I believe so. I am reasonably confident. You've uh, you've caught me out here. Um, yeah. Uh, Geez, I hope you can uh, edit this out in post because uh, you really caught me out. They have, they have made an impact in the past, and uh, and usually the exceptions being Russia and China. We like to see those uh, trajectories continue, like keep participating. Um, if you come and you're, you know, you don't really want to play with others like Russia and China, you don't really get invited back. But Indonesia, we don't have that problem because, like I mentioned, uh, it's a positive relationship. Thanks, Gilang. Uh, from the Indonesian perspective, how's that relationship with the U.S. viewed? Well, in my experience, I've noticed uh, that the trajectory of the U.S.-Indonesian military relationship has somewhat maintained a positive direction, positive note. I've been involved in several workshops and some exercise, tabletop exercises within this uh, respect. And I do see that it seems that there is no reason to hold back. And coming from the Ministry of uh, Defense, I think there's still... It's still, I suppose, it's still in the budget, and I and I definitely see more um, relationship in the future. Uh, now, perhaps, if I may add my two two cents within this relationship, is that uh, as as Blake certainly mentioned upon the uh, relationship and exercises between the Grey Halls and also the White Halls, I think White Halls and also capabilities of maritime law enforcement is very much the imperative here. I suppose. It's uh, impetus for the for Bakamla to be the Coast Guard that we all demanded to be, and that it's true politically speaking, Bakamla has been given the the, the baton of the uh, maritime law enforcement within Indonesia, and there's there are talks politically for an in- integrated Coast Guard under Bakamla. And I, I suppose in the future, I, I think one of the reason and aspects why, to an extent, the Navy still wants to hold to the uh, maritime law enforcement role, uh, in a way, we, we see that the Indonesian Navy is still very much in between the brown water, green water Navy, in a sense that their role and their, their capability is still very much limited. But we see with the new equipments trying to be purchased and new roles being acquisitioned by the Navy, for example, if they have bigger ships, they have not just corvettes, but if they have bigger frigates, and if they really want to ascend 
and in bigger roles, then uh, there's no reason to, for example, deploy a missile uh, guided missile frigates to to catch some fishermen out in the Indonesian territorial waters. They're definitely given to to the Bakamla, who definitely have offshore patrol vessels. But in the past, I think it's because the Navy only has offshore patrol vessels and a thousand ton corvettes, for example, is the reason why they're they're very much adamant in in just all right, let's. Uh, we'll keep the law enforcement force or else they'll be left jobless, right? They don't have the necessary roles or equipments to conduct any other operations rather than law enforcement. So relationship in the future, I hope, and I see not just with the U.S., but also with other countries, is that they're really, really trying to uh, separate this Whitehall and Grey Hall, increase capability for the Whitehalls and maritime law enforcement for Bakamla, and, of course, increasing role with the Navy for more, I suppose, uh, high-level operations in brown and green water areas, hopefully in the, the couple of decades, blue water Navy as well. So hopefully that trajectories will go in that direction. Thanks, Natalie. Any final thoughts on this topic? Otherwise, uh, I think we're uh, yeah. out of time and I'll wrap it up. But please go ahead. Absolutely. I think there's a lot to be said about the important role the United States has played together with Indonesia in terms of professional military education as well. And the reason I want to highlight that, I think it's really important to maintain that exchange of personnel, of U.S. personnel going to study at Indonesian institutions, military institutions, and for Indonesians to go and uh, take part and, you know, to go to Monterey and places like that and, and receive military education there. What I want to sort of, you know, cast to you and your listeners is, well, what will happen to defense diplomacy and military exchanges on a person-to-person level in the era of COVID-19? Will we lose, you know, possibly six months to six to 12 months worth of people-to-people interactions? How will we maintain those really intimate relationships that we need in times of crisis? And I think Australia can attest to the importance of one-on-one relationships and their importance during times like East Timor. And so the question I, I have to pose there is, well, you know, how do we maintain defense diplomacy in these current times? And given how important they are, not only just in terms of those people-to-people relationships, but as Gillan pointed out, you know, bringing in new ideas of how to manage different kinds of shifts from going from a brown and green water navy to a blue water navy, and uh, you know, getting the Indonesian military's personnel to think more broadly and to think in global terms. So I'm really interested to to know. I don't have an answer to this. Obviously, I, I suspect technology will play a part, but maintaining the intensity. And the tempo of those kinds of interactions, I think, is something that we should be thinking about very carefully in the next uh, next three to six months, if not 12. Either of you have any thoughts on that? It's just as I heard that I think to myself, we're going to be more reliant than ever on the existing relationships, those people who have already studied abroad in the other country, to uh, reach out to their former classmates and try to hold that relationship together as best they can and check in on each other. I'm really glad that Natalie brought up the the professional military education piece and the and the military exchange because I think you know that relationship is is incredible. I kind of hope this is a catalyst to pushing those relationships into forums like this that are more regular, you know, like we're using right now, video teleconference that is cheap and free to keep those bonds strong regardless of circumstance. It shouldn't take something like COVID-19 to regularize these person-to-person links, catch-ups between classmates. We can still do PME on teleconferencing suites. We could be using Zoom like everyone else to keep these links strong. And I, and I hope that that is something that we learn from this, that we can increase the contact that we have and, and, and strengthen those bonds without necessarily having to do the, the in-person meetings um, that can be sometimes prohibitively difficult to fund, organize, schedule, you know, it's pretty easy to to get a handful of people together on something like this and, and discuss a topic of importance and not everything has to be held at the classified level. So I, I think that's a great note from Natalie. I, I really appreciate that. And to slightly redeem myself and attack on that, yes, Indonesia did participate in the last three RIMPACs. I apologize to the entire TNIAL and basically everyone I work with who probably is going to listen to this and shame me extensively. I was going to edit it out to save you, but you having said that, I, I will I will leave it in. Uh, Jilong, final thought on uh, Natalie's last uh, entry there? Otherwise, I'll close it out. There was a saying I just remembered. If you build, for example, roads or bridges and et cetera, there are bound to be just a couple of people running by it and then just seeing the roads. But there's an example set aside by the U.S. military building a school in Vietnam, if I'm not mistaken, and just saying, 
We're building one, one school, but we're having about 100 students every day, every year, coming by through it. And then for every student's graduating, they'll be impressed or at least they'll, they'll have a lasting impression of the, the thing that was given by the U.S. military or, or, or by the relationship between the U.S. military and Vietnamese government. And I think that is a very good saying of, of, of how this sort of relationship not only touches between um, personnel, of military personnel, but also how it touches uh, civilians on the ground and how it gives a lasting impression. And I think that is the most a critical component, especially here in Indonesia, is to give out a lasting impression on how countries like the United States can be seen, not only by us observers, but, for example, the children that are running right now in front of my streets, <laughs> something like that. Thank you very much, Long. I'd like to thank my guests for joining us today. Natalie, where can we find you online and what's next for you? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at, at Security Scholar, but uh, I also run an organization called Verve Research. So it's www.ververesearch.org, where we, my team and I produce research on civil military relations with a focus on Southeast Asia. So those are the places you can find me, and Verve is also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can also find me on Instagram, where I'm quite active, at Security Scholar as well. Thank you. And Gilang, where can we find you and what are you working on now? You can definitely find me at CSI's website and not the CSI's Washington. No, you will not find a Gilang there. <laughs> but you will find me at CSI's Indonesia website. And I'm working on at the moment on issue of Indonesia's strategy and also Indonesia's relationship with China. You can also find me in Instagram and also Twitter. It's at Bara Kambara, B-A-R-A Kambara. I don't post that much, don't post regularly, but sometimes I do post some post articles published uh, within CSIS or around. What's next for me in a couple of minutes is that I'm scheduled to give my son his lunch. <laughs> it's because we're really fast approaching lunchtime. I, I just, I can't believe how time flies. <laughs> Absolutely. And Blake, uh, I know you recently came back from deployment. Did you manage to start any projects while you're out at sea? And uh, where can we find you online? Uh, so I actually tied off most of my writing projects before I left the ship, looking forward to what I knew would be three to four weeks of extreme sloth. And I am on the tail end of that, which I think some of my more notable gaffes just show how much rust can accumulate in a month of doing nothing but you know laying around. So yeah, I've been enjoying time with, with my wife and son, but uh, doing a little research now on uh, some Russian maritime security cooperation in Southeast Asia. So hoping to... Uh, to have something like that on the street shortly. I am on Twitter at BD Herzinger. As quarantine increases, you will get more and more pictures of my dog, cat, son, and wife. So no promises. You might be get a 50-50 maritime security Herzinger family mix, but, but I am there. Thanks, Blake. Thank you again uh, to all our guests. And for our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.